This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. What's up, my peoples? It's a very special time in Huey Off the Record Land this week. We got our very first double pod week, and next week our very first live pod recording with the one and the only Goldie. Exciting times to be alive. So, hey, yo, I'm back today with a very interesting conversation I had with this dude, David Hepworth. He's an acclaimed music journalist and an author in his new book called Uncommon People, The Rise and Fall of the Rockstar. is a very good read, and you should check it out. He's got some interesting insight. Now, David is a very knowledgeable guy, and he's interviewed as many rock stars as I've hung out with backstage with. So, really, we get into the whole rock star psyche. And we're both old-schoolish dudes, so we go uh, to talking about the rock stars of today, or the lack thereof. And I think you'll enjoy this one. So, kick back, relax, enjoy this special bonus episode of Huey Off the Record with... David Hepworth. How you doing, man? I'm all right. I'm okay. Warm enough. Yeah. Are you in an air-conditioned area? Oh, no, no, no. No, no, no. I've got a window open. Does that count? Yeah, I guess so, man. I, I, you know what? I, I'm kind of one of those dudes that I always, I always loved air conditioning because I'm from New York and I didn't grow up with it. Right. And uh, I live in this big old house, and I have a little air conditioning, like R2-D2 kind of unit that I bring, I put up in the bedroom when it gets too hot. But uh, Right. Where do you live? I live out in Somerset. Oh, whereabouts? Uh, I guess I guess between Bath and Glastonbury. Right. Okay. So it's... it's, it's has it been busy this weekend, presumably? Oh, absolutely, man. And you know what? It's, it's kind of... It's, it's cool that we're speaking the day after Glastonbury you know, limps off of our consciousness, man. Um, All right. I, I was there for a couple of days, and, you know, it, it was kind of weird, man. I mean, I, I know that, like, that, that book you wrote about uh, about the rock star thing kind of comes into play when you see the lack of rock stars in the world today. You know what I mean? It's just, right. it's just so, it's like just, a, you know, there it is. <laughs> you know, that's, that's the exact reason why we need, you know, we need people who actually have, are firing on most of their cylinders, man. Uh-huh. But, you know, the, the, I originally got down with you with the 1971 book. Right. And I, I, I think, you know, I, I totally agree with that book as well. I, it's one of my favorite years in music, if not my favorite. Good, good. Now, I wanted, I wanted to kind of talk to you about this thing, because I, I know that you have this new book out. It's the, the Rise and Fall of the Rockstars, right? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I guess what would be the, the main argument to say, like, if I play the devil's advocate for a moment, if you don't mind. Go on. Uh, 
and this, this isn't necessarily my, my opinion, but like, hey, Justin Bieber's kind of a rock star, isn't he? <laughs> um, I suppose my feeling is that you have loads of big music stars nowadays, but I think they're kind of, they're built of a different timber, really. Uh, yes, I suppose my view is that most musical eras tend to have about 40 years. I think if you look at jazz or you look at country music, it's kind of 40 years. Uh, you know, before they start repeating themselves and then it's time for something else. And so, you know, my rock star era starts in the mid-50s with, you know, the usual Little Richard, Elvis Presley, Jerry Lewis and so forth. And then kind of ends, because it suits the t- it suits my book as much as anything else, it ends 40 years later with the, with the death of Kurt Cobain. Uh, you know, because that, that all seemed part of kind of one tradition or reactions to one tradition. It was one way of doing things. You know, it was about it was about live music and it was about a certain kind of catalogue. And I think now these things don't go on forever. Nothing goes on forever. You know, the big band era ended. I don't know in the you know in, in the fifties or whatever, in the late forties. And and then you had the Beatles. You know, you had Elvis Presley and the Beatles and, and so forth. And so you, you'll have Justin Bieber and you'll have Taylor Swift and you'll have whoever, and they'll be big stars and really popular. But I don't think they're rock stars. Mm-hmm. You know, I think rock stars were a kind of they're a product of a certain age and a certain moment in time and a certain musical tradition and uh, you know I just wanted to take advantage of the fact that I kind of you know as I, as I always say I was born in 1950 which in, in pop music terms is the winning ticket in the lottery of life you know because <laughs> you know I kind of I roughly just about remember remember Elvis Presley before he went in the army I was 13, 14 when the Beatles and the Stones came along you know 15 when Bob Dylan like a, like a Rolling Stone I was I was only 26 when punk came around, you know. So I've seen, I've seen the rise and fall of this, um, of this curious kind of uh, tribe of people, and I just wanted to write about them. You know, I started off really. I just wanted to write something about rock stars, rock stars as a tribe. Mm-hmm. I was really interested in their, in their kind of tribal rights. You know, uh, in the varying different sorts of people who became rock stars. You know what becoming rock stars did to them, and also about what our choice of them as rock stars kind of said about us. <laughs> you know, so so that's what I wanted to write about. And then when I sat down to write about it, I thought, you know, this doesn't happen anymore. This this finished. And then I, and then I went and looked at it and thought, no, Kurt Cobain is where it finished really. Now you could yeah. argue, and certainly some people in Britain would argue that Oasis. You know, which came just about slightly on the heels of the death of Kurt Cobain, mm-hmm. was was a kind of last flurry of this kind of thing. But you know, Oasis Oasis never really meant that much outside the UK. Yeah, and I also think they were they were very kind of backward looking. <laughs> you know, you know, if if you go and you look at the great Brit pop scare of whenever that was, nineteen. 95 or something like that it seemed very retrospective to me it seemed like they seemed to be saying oh it's all been done <laughs> it was all done by the kinks and the beatles and and the rolling stones and we're just here to put a kind of you know a modern twist on it you know um so you know that was my feeling that it was an era and uh, and there were a bunch of characters in that era that i wanted to write about you know individually and collectively so that's what i did no, I, I kind of I agree with the premise where it goes to. Uh, it was like a certain 
type of person in a certain time and things like that. Do you think it has like the variables that probably people would would jump to first would be maybe technology or you know, I mean, just it seems like there's there's no mystique in being a rock musician or a musician. I mean, I remember it was in 1996 when my band first came over to the UK and it was complete uh, Britpop. Like I couldn't even tell who was who. Everybody looked mm -hmm. exactly the same. It was kind of like that kind of vibe. And I, I, I didn't see that happening in New York City at all, right? So I kind of agree with the whole Kurt Cobain being the last guy, but he was one of those dudes that was, he was kind of always... I guess it's that what that whole whole postmodernist thing where he kind of understood that he was you know the dancing monkey and it was kind of why he checked out in a lot of ways. But do you think that was what people saw in him that they saw in something as themselves? Well, I um, I think he felt he seemed to feel the kind of responsibility of being a rock star the, too much, and <laughs> he kind of. You know, obviously he had his own issues, um, and but, but on top of it, he felt that being a rock star meant he had to behave in a certain way, and that people expected certain things of him. Mm -hmm. And I don't think he felt he could he could live up to those things at all. You know, that he he very much felt himself part of a tr tradition. You know, his suicide note, you know, quotes Neil Young and so forth. You know, and uh, and he he sort of. He took it too seriously, really. You know, it's, it's rather a glib thing to say, but you know, he, and he, 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 it came to an end. You know, he, he he felt it. He felt it. His skin was too thin, really, for it. You know, because I think if people if people going to deal with being a really big rock star on a, on a on a massive scale, they have to have quite a thick skin to find a way to tolerate it and to tolerate people's expectations of them as to know what they can deliver and know what they can't deliver. And I think it was a particular issue with somebody like Kurt Cobain because by then, the business had got bigger than ever. That was the highest point of the business. You know, if you were selling records in 1993-94, you were really selling records. You were selling CDs in enormous quantities at considerable cost. And you are making fortunes. You're making fortunes that the Rolling Stones had never made, you know, 20 years earlier. And so I think that led to a kind of bad conscience about it, you know, because he saw himself as I'm the leader of this this little punk group. But look at me, I'm kind of bigger than Led Zeppelin. And it was a difficult thing for him to deal with. But, I mean, your point about the technology, I think, is, is a really important point because one of the things that struck me was that as soon as, as soon as the act of playing instruments kind of became inscrutable, you know, as soon as you walk, <laughs> you, you, you saw being, you know, I always That's say, a nice way to put it, David. You know, everybody, you, you get electronic groups and, you know, God knows I love them, the Pet Shop Boys and so forth. But, you know, there are a couple of guys standing behind, you know, pieces of electronic <laughs> equipment. You know, they're standing behind hostess trolleys. I don't know if you remember that, you know, that reference, you know. And there's a limit to how excited you can get about them. The excitement has to be provided by the dancers or the the scenery or yeah, you know yeah. the lights and so forth. Whereas I remember at 15 or 16 watching the birds arriving on Ready Steady Go, and you were just enthralled yeah. by the spectacle of watching five guys 
just standing there with instruments and they oh look that's a 12 string Rickenbacker and oh look at that bass and oh look at the way Michael Clark looks at Chris Hillman you know there was a drama within a rock group that was just a beautiful beautiful absorbing thing and um, and I think once it goes it goes you know, and uh, and I think you know nowadays we accept that all musical sounds can be summoned at the push of a button but yeah, yeah, no, that's one of the things that I guess when people look at, you know, uh, like kids like Ed Sheeran, who are, in my mind, just really fucking annoying, but, <laughs> and people, you know, say, oh, but he's so, you know, he's he's doing these loop things and they're so complicated, I'm, I'm not feeling that, you know, I'm, I don't get it. <laughs> well, a lot of people do, don't they? I know, <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying I'm, I'm like one of the majority, but I never am, but I, I, I it seems to me, I guess it maybe is because of, I guess everybody's so damn savvy nowadays, you know, I mean, when you're talking about watching, you know, band mates, uh, you know, interact while playing a song live on a television show, we don't really have that much live interaction with live bands anymore. You see festivals and like Glastonbury just finished, we were just talking about that, and that's what you see of live bands, and you only see the ones that, you know, are selected to be on TV. There's not a real live television band thing happening anymore. No, no, maybe not. And you know, I don't, I don't feel, I don't feel the drama in the same way. You know, I feel, you know, because live shows are very, you know, they, they, as a consequence of the increased scale. You know, it's one of the points I made in the book is that, you know, things change in 1985 with Live Aid, really, because I think what Live Aid did, you know, apart from its charitable dimension and so forth. What it did was sell this huge audience on the idea of going to gigs, of go the idea of going to big open-air gigs, which were very kind of ritualized, you know, where people behaved in a certain way, yep. and you got, you got all the hits, and, you know, you waved your arms in the air, and you could see the show on a big screen <laughs> on yep. one side of the stage and so forth. And people liked the idea of that, and people still like the idea of that, yeah. you know. I can't get over this. You know, you took a, this is a weekend at Glastonbury. I can't get over the fact that Jeff Lynn has just been playing at Wembley Stadium. Yeah, that's you know? incredible, right? Now, when when ELO were really, really were making all those records that made their reputation in 1976 or whatever, they weren't playing anywhere bigger than Wembley Arena. I wouldn't have thought. Yeah, but 20,000, 20,000 seaters are. If if that now. Now, you know, 30, 40 years after the time, after the event, they're playing for a far bigger audience in far bigger venues, you know. So, so you know, people go along, they go along to see certain ritualized type of, of large entertainment experiences. You know, they're, they're kind of, they're like football, except they're less unexpected than football. Yeah, exactly, uh, right. You know, whereas, whereas you know, in the, in the kind of glory, <laughs> we talk about the glory days of, you know, if you, you know, in the days, well, uh, the cover of the book, actually, interestingly, is a picture of David Bowie getting out of his limousine outside the Hammersmith Odeon in 1973, prior to playing what was his last show of Ziggy Stardust. And he's surrounded by 15-year-old kids, you know. And I was speaking to one of these kids, you know, who he, they, they bunked off school for the afternoon to go down to Hammersmith to see David Bowie arrive. And the point is this, they could go and buy a ticket on the day, yeah, and get in, you know, and that was 
that was ground zero of international rock and roll, you know, uh, fuss at that moment. You could do it on the on the day. Nowadays, everything, you know, people buy their tickets with a credit card online. It's a completely planned experience. Yeah. And you know, also- that's how you get access to it. And so it's different in its nature. And so if you're, if you're charging people 50 or 60 pounds to see an act, you know, 70 or 80 dollars or whatever, you know, you've got to guarantee them that they're going to get a lot, that they're going to get, you know, all the bells and whistles, they're going to get some spectacle, and you're going to do your hits. There will be nothing unexpected about it. Yeah. Whereas... If you went to see David Bowie in 1973, there'd be loads of things unexpected about it. They, they probably would have only made up the set list on the afternoon. It was a different kind of, it was a different time. Now that I, time's gone. Yeah, I hear you. I, I wrote a book about rebellion in music, you know, and right. my argument was people were compelled to do these things, I guess, when in, in the duration of my book is, you know, pretty much coming up with like Ma Rainey in the early 20th century, going through these people that... I guess in a lot of ways used rebellion to their advantage. You know, they they you know they had a lot of guile and they were compelled to do it. They just didn't do it because they knew there was a lot of money in it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And with these kind of people, I always find their motivations are different. Like, what what do you think the 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 thing that ties a lot of these rock stars together is it like motivation that to be something better or different or? Um, well, the ones I'm writing about, you know, and what I've done is I've taken. So it's a 40-year period, and I've taken one rock star on one day in each of those 40 years, you know, so it's very kind of tightly focused. And what I've tried to do is just write about kind of defining moments. Um, And I I think they were mostly people who had no choice. There were people who could only imagine ever doing that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like the first one I write about is Little Richard. And Little Richard is... His extraordinary personal shortcomings. He wouldn't have made it in any other field, you know what I mean? And you look at loads of these people, you know, Elvis Presley or, or you know, I don't know, Ringo Starr or whatever. And if they had to go through a kind of, you know, in most areas of entertainment, you have to be kind of hired to do it, don't you? You know, if, if you want to be a singer or a dancer, <laughs> yeah. you have to, somebody yeah. has to stand behind a desk and go, Okay, I've got 50 choices here, and I'm going to choose you, yeah? Rock stars, not like that. Rock stars make up themselves. They make up their own little territory themselves, you know what I mean? They present present a a larger version of themselves, and they build on that. And so that was the thing that that I found that, that applied with loads of these people, whether they were kind of, you know, Janis Joplin or Bruce Springsteen or Ringo Starr or Little Richard or, or whatever, they kind of, they started from what they were and they, they, they worked out what it could be about themselves that would appeal to lots and lots of people without necessarily changing themselves. They just became a larger version of themselves. They weren't trying to be anybody else. I think a lot of people nowadays are trying to be like somebody else, somebody who's come before, because he's kind of bound to be that like that because there have been so many examples of it. But interestingly, I write about one of the, my favorite chapters in the book is I write about Ian Stewart. And Ian Stewart was the founder member of the Rolling Stones. He was thrown out of the Rolling Stones at the time they signed a record contract because his face literally didn't fit. 
he had a he had a large chin, and and Andrew Oldham, the manager of the Rolling Stones, said said we can't have more than five members in this group because people can't remember them, and <laughs> and you know they can't hold them in their head, which is a fair point, and and also he's ugly. He said he's ugly. Chuck him out. He can con- continue to play piano with the band. He can continue to drive us around and so forth. And God knows he did for, you know, until he died in the mid-80s. He did that quite happily. But my point about Ian Stewart is Ian Stewart could imagine himself not being a rock star. And that's why he wasn't a rock star. The people who are rock stars are the people who couldn't imagine themselves ever being anything else. They just had that absolutely singular drive. Yeah. And, you know, God knows they're... They're relentless, you know what I mean? And this is one of the points I, 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 you know, I want to make. And, you know, I met loads of rock stars. You met loads of rock stars. Mm-hmm. And every, fans of rock stars like to feel that they got where they got just by kind of good fortune and, you know, and talent. You know, they got where they got by all those things and massive drive. Mm-hmm. You know, they will stand on other people's faces to get where they to get where they want to go. You and, know, and stay where they are. You know, yeah, that's you know they they're driven. You know, people say, "Why is Paul McCartney and Elton John still on the road now?" You know, and I say, "Well, if you could do that, would you?" Yes, you would. Yeah, it's a, it's a great <laughs> way to spend an evening. You know, that's it's great way to spend an evening, and you get more money than they've ever got in their lives. And what else are they going to do with themselves? Yes. They're going to go home, you know, because, you know, you've had this experience. I haven't had this experience. But, you know, you know, it's like Gary Lineker always says, you know, that scoring a goal in, in, in top-level football is better than sex. Don't tell your wife, but it's better than sex. And footballers spend the rest of their lives knowing they can never do that again. Rock stars, <laughs> on the other hand, can continue doing it. Yeah. This applies supplies to them and not to any other anybody else in the population. Doesn't there's no other you know walk of life where you can continue doing that in your forties, fifties, sixties, seventies, and people will pay you more money than they paid you ten years before. <laughs> it's extraordinary, isn't it? No, it is quite amazing. I was hanging out with the Stones when they were in, in America for their fiftieth anniversary thing, and I had spoken to Keith a bunch, right? So he and I were kind of familiar, and the, the thing that I got, like, I, I was considered those guys, like, some of the biggest rock stars in the history of the world, yeah. right? You know, I mean, it just, they were in the, they were in that point in the 70s where the money was just kicking in, and, and I guess, the, you know, you could rent airplanes, and everything just looked amazing, you know? Yeah. And I remember Keith said something to me one time that he doesn't go to movies because he doesn't want to wreck it for regular people. And the thing is that he, he didn't say regular people, meaning like, you know, you people or anything like that. He was totally self-aware and saying it, you know, like the people who I am not, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. I am yeah, separated yeah. from them, not because he's better. It's just he's separate and he knows that. And I thought, Absolutely. Now, these people, and somebody was saying the other day that um, I noticed on Twitter when... Uh, it was actually Michael Hamm from The Guardian who was commenting on Radiohead at at, um, at Glastonbury. And he said the thing he didn't like about Radiohead is they didn't seem to enjoy being rock stars. 
<laughs> yeah, it's a, it's I, a, I think it's a very <laughs> fair point. People like to think that they enjoy it. You know what I mean? Because they they've had to work hard for it. There's a lot of sacrifices that go with it. You know. Yeah. So you may as well look as if you love it, you know, and, they, and the people I admire, you know, the people like Bruce Springsteen, they've done that, you know. So you look at him on stage and he, you know, he's 67 or whatever he is and you're thinking, well, if I could do that, I would do that, you know, and you're having an absolute ball doing it. You yeah. Know, but you know you're not like everybody else. Yeah, I, I, I mean, with guys like on that level, like Springsteen, things like I've run into him because I have a friend, we have a friend in common. It, it, it's it's that singular experience. Like if it's the first time they met you, it's kind of, the drive is at such a narrow focus. They want that person they're just meeting to go away, going, "Holy shit, they're amazing!" Yeah. You know what I mean? They, they do, and that's the, and, and Bruce Springsteen is a really interesting point of this, in that he actually made it quite late. You know, if you compare it to kind of when John Lennon and Mick Jagger and people like that made it, they were, you know, 1920. Yeah. Whereas Bruce Springsteen was probably out of it, 25, 26 before he, you know, he was probably 30 before he had a really big hit. hit. And, um, and so I've always felt about Bruce Springsteen that what he's done more effectively than anybody else is he's, he's, he's made himself into the kind of hero that he, at the age of 15, would want to have seen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, it'll happen, kid. Take it and, easy. And and he's, he's, he does that, and I've interviewed him a few times, and and he said to me, the, the, the single most impressive thing I've ever heard a rock star say, <laughs> he said to me, you have a responsibility to be living in the moment when 8 o'clock comes around. Which means you've got to be there. You've got to be completely there. Not just physically there. You've got to be mentally there, emotionally there. You've got to deliver the best show you can possibly deliver for those people because that's the only time they're going to see in their lives. It's not just another gig. It's something special. And that you should put as much into it as they will put into it. And I think... I think it's brilliant that he does yeah, that. That's, that's a great ethos, man. I wish a lot it's of a, other people had that, you know. It's a really good ethos, you know, because it, it's, you know, it's not about the money. I mean, it's almost partly about the money, but it's 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 not all about the money. It's about, you know, feeling that you have a kind of mission to do. Don't go anywhere. Stay locked on Huey Off The Record. <laughs> Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. 
That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Yeah, well, I, I, I was talking to a friend of mine. This is... This is probably peak fun-loving criminals, so like, you know, 1999, 2000, somewhere around there, right? And, you know, I think my friend was saying, like, oh, isn't it tough doing all these gigs? And we're going out for, like, you know, four months at a clip. And I was like, no, it's like, it's my duty as a dude to, you know, I was given this opportunity. I don't know if it's going to be here next year. I don't know if it's going to be here in 10 years or whatever, five years, nothing. So I'm going to go and do it because it's my responsibility as a dude. Absolutely. And your responsibility to enjoy it. Oh, yeah, yeah. To look like you're enjoying it. Well, I mean, the, the living in the moment thing is something that, it, you know, it, we used to do a lot more of it, I think, as a society. Yeah. And yeah. I, I think the fact that, you know, I guess Bruce Springsteen is one of those guys that, you know, can really sum things up like that really well. And that's the thing that, you know, I think people want to be in the moment. And when they do go to these, these big shows with these big rock stars, they feel that they're having a moment of their lives. Yeah, well, I yeah, you know, and at the you know, at their best, that's what I've you know, I've been fortunate to to see a few of those. You know, um, you know, I saw I saw Bob Marley and the Whalers at the Lyceum in nineteen seventy five. You know, on the on the night they recorded the legendary live album, and and that was and that was extraordinary. Even at the time, you thought. This is the greatest thing I've ever heard. Really, and this and this will be the greatest thing I ever hear in my whole life. <laughs> I mean, it must you see things like that where we can all, as you know, as I guess, as music lovers, go back and check like that particular you can, record. Man, you yeah, can, man. but you know, it, I, it was it Count Basie who said like you know, recorded music is just an estimation of a live event or something, a, repro- a, a cheap reproduction of a live happening or whatever oh, and, now, right. and then we went into recorded music for 50 years and now we're kind of falling out of love with recorded music I mean it is what it is now I know that the charts don't really f- reflect people buying music now it's streaming and things like that so but it, the live events I think where musicians are making their money now because you can't really bottle that stuff you know, no absolutely and, uh, and one of, the, and one of the, my theories is one of the reasons you had the era of the rock star is it was the era of physical product. And so rock stars were on some level, they were brand names. Yeah, yeah. They, they were like football teams. You, you decided to be loyal to Rob Stewart or Led Zeppelin or whoever. Paint them on the back of your leather jacket, you know. Yeah. Because they had a new album came out every three years and it, it cost you more money than you had. And you had to go and buy it. And you wouldn't know whether you liked it until you played it. And very often, it, when you played it, you didn't like it, but you didn't you didn't admit it to yourself at all because you would decide that you were a Rod Stewart fan or a Led Zeppelin fan. Whereas nowadays, with you know everything's click, you can click it. You can, your investment in anything is ten seconds of your time. 
Do you think that's why music sucks now? Because it's not. And I know this. I don't know. Okay, okay. I don't okay. think it does. No, no. I, I don't mean it like that. I don't mean it like that. That's not a really. That's generalizing. But I mean, do you think, uh, to a large extent, that's why there's not so much thought put into uh, taking time to create a certain unique style or unique type of music, and everything's just clickbait, really. Well. I tell you what I think is that you know if you go back to my book about 1971, you know that one of the points I made in that is in 1971 there was music and there wasn't much else. Yeah. You know I wouldn't wish an evening of 1971 television on my worst enemy. You know there wasn't an awful lot going on at the movies. You know it was all about music, and you had you know this terrific generation of uniquely talented you know David Bowie and Rod Stewart and Stevens and Mark Bolan and you know Led Zeppelin and the Who and the Rolling Stones all doing this fantastic work, and they benefited hugely from the fact that they had an audience who concentrated almost as hard as they did. Yeah. So when you got the new record by Sanso, you really listened to it. You listened to it like crazy. You know these records are imprinted on us every last. Pop and click on those records mm -hmm. is insiders because we listen to them hundreds of times. I don't think anybody does that anymore because there's there's too many options. Yeah, I think you're there's right. All, yeah, there's all kinds of options. Yeah, that's just the way it is. Yeah, I, I know that. You know, for instance, if I bought like I remember I bought a Rock Pile record, which was with Dave Edmonds and Nick Lowe. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. a great record. It had that Teacher Teacher track on it. I remember I bought. It, I was listening to the record and I didn't get it right off the bat. And my first my first notion was like, all right, you know, maybe this is something I haven't heard before and I have to get used to these kind of like, you know, styles of it. And you know what? It broadened me, I think, knowing that yeah. I might have to bend a little bit to understand somebody's artistic endeavor. Yeah, you worked it. I think yeah. you worked it more yeah. in those days. I don't think, you know, it's like anything, you know, I sit here with, you know, there's Netflix. I mean, how many times? You must have done this. Have you got Netflix? Oh, hell yeah, of course I do. Okay, how many times do you go through Netflix, sitting there going, oh, what's that, what's that, click, 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 just saying, and then you end up watching nothing? <laughs> you know what, I got two young kids, so my wife and I have about 45 minutes, an hour after uh, everything's said and uh, done, so we do exactly that, we're like, oh, let's watch a documentary, well, we want to watch a documentary, and then next thing you know, it's 45 minutes later, and we haven't watched a damn thing, too well, much yeah. choice. It's and that's that's the dilemma of choice, you know. Yeah. And, and that's what happened with music. Whereas you used to play the records you had, and you didn't have many, <laughs> you know. Uh, you know, even though, you know, I worked at a record shop in in, in the mid seventies in in London, you know, and I used to get a lot of free records. But you know, even I didn't have that many, you know. Whereas now we all sit there with the with the world's biggest record collection at our fingertips. <laughs> Yeah, and, and so we feel different about it because we're less invested in it. You know, that's it's an economic thing as much as anything else. Well, I know that I lost my actual physical vinyl collection. In I have a storage locker in New. I had one in New York that was in the basement of a storage facility, so everything got got in a flood in Hurricane Sandy. Oh dear! But dear you know, idea. I I and when I first when I first got a little bit of money, like ninety late ninety five. There's a company in New York City that would digitize all your stuff. 
and they make right. two copies. They keep a copy on CD, and they give you a copy on CD. But they print out the nice, you know, labels and all that kind of shit. So I was like, yeah, okay. And it was free. It was a free service. So I, I yeah, it was it was limited time only, man. But anyway, so so I had a digital copy of everything, and that's what I work on now. Right. And because I, the fact that I don't have the physical the physical vinyl anymore, it means it, it, it doesn't mean as much to me. It doesn't, of course it doesn't. I've got to do a thing this week about Sergeant Pepper. Mm -hmm. And you know, the the obvious and I was thinking about this. You know, the obvious question is how important is the cover? Yeah, and I, I thought to myself, it's it's just hugely important. Yeah. <laughs> it's, you know if if Peter Blake and Jan Hay Howarth had never done that cover if, if the cover of Sergeant Pepper had been the cover of Revolver, which is a very nice cover, mm -hmm. we wouldn't be sitting here talking about it 50 years later. Yeah, yeah, we right. just would, we just I, have, I have a copy of it, funny you say that, on my desk. I, I've been, it's one of my favorite records of all time. When I was a little kid, it bent my mind one time. And I was like, wow, okay. And everything about it I thought was completely amazing. I still do. But it's that cover. I mean, it, it sounds as if you're... It sounds as if you're being disrespectful to the music when you say that the cover is kind of 50% of the value. But yes. it kind of is. <laughs> well, it sort of is. Well, remember, what was it? Uh, the Rolling Stones, uh, one with the, uh, with, the, with the zipper. Uh, sticky Fingers. Yes, yes, sticky Fingers. Yes, yeah, Sticky Fingers. From, your, from your, that crazy year. That, that album, I had that one. I had an original with the zipper. You know, yeah. and then I, I I lost that when someone took took it or something. Then I had to buy the non-original one with the fake zipper, and I was oh, like, oh good. yeah, you know, it's no good at all. Yeah. So my theory about the Rolling Stones, I developed while writing that book, is by their covers shall ye know them. If you've got good, the Rolling Stones albums that got good covers are good records. The Rolling Stones albums that don't have good covers are not good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So just I go away and try that. I know Same what black. Works. I know what black and blue looks like in my mind, but I don't know what uh, Harlem Shuffle looks like in my uh, mind. Dirty work, yeah. Oh, dirty work. work. Yo, no, dirty was Matt. It was. Uh, it was very late night with David Letterman, bowling alley kind yeah. of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah not yeah. a good but copy. It's not in them. So that's how it works. Now, we mentioned something before which I thought was kind of interesting as far as rock stars go. Now, I have a, I have a kind of like, not a love-hate thing going with Lenny Kravitz, but like we don't really know each other that well. But <laughs> some funny things happen, and, and just the short version of it is having to do with rock stars is uh, at Glastonbury, you know, in 1999, he went on before Fun Loving Criminals, and then we played, and then Skunk and Nancy headlined, right? So we're hanging out, and... Uh, Backstage, kind of having a barbecue, you know, waiting for time to go on. And uh, Michael Evis pulls up in a golf cart and says, Hey, guys, would you mind moving around on the bill a little bit? We're like, No, no problem. We'll play now if you want. He's like, No, no, no. So, anyway, it turns out that Lenny Kravitz didn't want to go on before us because he felt that he was a lot bigger than us. And, <laughs> and you know what? I, I, I don't hate, I participate. So, I was not angry with dude at all. I just say, He's Lenny Kravitz. He's got to be bigger than, you know, you know, he's got that. We were talking about that rock star drive, right? Now, yeah. but I, the thing about Lenny Kravitz that always kind of not bothered me, but made me kind of just go, oh, okay, was that I always thought that he was directly, and we have a term in New York called biting. Like you just go after someone's style. Like he did that like Hendrix thing for a minute, and then he did that kind of Earth, Wind, and Fire thing for a minute. 
but we well, we had a conversation about our Madame Tussauds wax wax figures because I have one, but I'm just standing there holding a drink like I'm waiting around for something to happen. But his he's got the big rock star pose going. <laughs> no, and it, it just like if we were both in the same you know um, you know I guess primary school and and the and the photos of the the school photos would probably be vastly different, right? Now I was wondering when because my kid is kind of young trying to find the rock stars in his the school and it's so obvious who the ones that have that kind of light are you know that they're just kind of like swagger and they're like six you know what i mean <laughs> swagger is the hugely important thing isn't oh, yeah. It? yeah yeah i i've come to the conclusion that um you know i actually decided when um i interviewed bob dylan in in 1986 and um and it wasn't a very successful interview and there was a kind of uh it was two sessions, the interview, and after the first session, the woman from the record company said to him, how do you think it's going? And he said, I don't know, he keeps asking me questions. And, uh, and of course, we all laugh about this. And now, and now I think, actually, no, that's a perfectly fair point, Bob, because actually I don't have any questions to ask you, Bob. You know, because what I, what, what I love about Bob Dylan is the mystique. I don't want answers. I don't want to find it out. What I'd like to do is watch him. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, that, I think that's one of the hugely appealing things about rock stars, is people like to look at them. Mm -hmm. They just like to look at them behaving. Yeah. They like to look at them walking on the stage and walking off the stage and interacting with each other. How they did standard physical things. Because, you know, it's like Michael Braun, who wrote that wonderful book about the Beatles in 1963 called Love Me Do, an American writer who went on the road with them in England during Beatlemania. And he said, I decided they were a different kind of people. Hmm. And I thought that was a really interesting point. That, and that these, these you know, rock stars, they've been new kinds of people to us over the years. We've seen them arrive. And we've watched them, and we've we've kind of patterned ourselves after them, you know, in the way that they behaved, in the way they just they played, the way they carried themselves. You know, it is it is that swagger is a hugely important thing. And I suppose you you know, going back to the point about Oasis, Oasis had that swagger. You know, if people can do impressions of Oasis just walking. <laughs> yes, that's true. <laughs> It's not even singing, you know. Yeah. It's just walking because actually, you know, Liam Gallagher didn't have much of an act. You know, yeah, he, his, just, yeah. he stood there. He still does it. <laughs> yeah, he just yeah, uh, but but it was it was kind of enough for a lot of people. Yeah, but yeah, you, you can see the swagger. Yeah, definitely. And of course, and this is one of my other points that is that, you know, I think as rock stars as a as a as a tribe disappeared, we began to apply the rock star descriptor yeah. to loads of other people in other areas. So See, talk about rock star politicians, I, rock star yeah, sports Yeah, exactly. I did want to mention that because I was kind of, I was wondering how did that, that, I guess, that uh, formula apply itself to the, the musicians that we're esteeming today, you know? Well, I, I, I don't think they, I don't think they are, you know, they don't, they don't have the same crackle to me at all, you know. Um, but I think part of that may be just you get too old, you know, that you 
I can't look at Ed Sheeran and be enthralled by him. I'm too old. You know, <laughs> you know, it's difficult to be that excited about people unless they were big stars when you were a kid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you, you get that relationship very, very early on. But, but no, people talk about, but we talk about rock star chefs, rock star, yeah. you know, scientists and all. And, and what, the reason we do this is that, is that we, we see in them a certain kind of recklessness, a certain unwillingness to read the instructions um, that we admire because our lives are less and less like that all the time. Most people live lives of great convention nowadays. And I think social media has made us more conventional. And I think social media is another reason why you don't have rock stars anymore. Because if rock stars were behaving today like Mick Jagger and David Bowie behaved in 1972, they would be regularly arraigned before the court of public opinion and forced to apologize in public you know, on, on social media, they would probably have to go to the sofas of Oprah Winfrey or whoever and apologise for whatever they did last night. Because no. they were disgraceful. I mean, but what, we didn't know that then. Nowadays, we know everything. What, what happened to our, our, I guess, you know, our liberalism? You know what I mean? It seems like that's the things we used to think was, was oh, amazing okay. about our society, that there were the, these rocks that were doing this. And now, like you said they'd publicly be shamed for being irresponsible musicians or whatever. I don't know. Well, yeah, well, liberalism went, didn't it? <laughs> uh, it's, it's now, it's, it's a, we're in the new Victorian age, I think. No, you know what? I don't think you're too far off. A friend of mine was mentioning something also about shame, and he said that we're in a post-shame uh, huh? kind of uh, area now because... If you if you think about like we were talking about you know David Bowie and and Mick Jagger right who, who apparently had a thing for a minute no one really knew but whatever you know you kind of knew that that thing probably would have been exploited horribly on on some kind of uh, e entertainment show wouldn't it have I mean it, it seems like people are motivated by very different things those guys were motivated from just living their lives probably being in the moment too many moments of the day but. I, I hear what you're saying with the social media thing almost being, yeah, almost being this this fourth wall that we're now kind of having to perform for. Yeah, well, it, 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 social media makes people, you know, um, conform. Mm-hmm. It just does. They conform with their tribe or they conform with the other tribe. <laughs> There's nowhere in the middle. Is everything really yeah. binary now? It's just it's them and I us. Think it, and, I think know. it appears to be. You know, yeah. it's 140 characters, and you know, uh, and you don't have much room for shades. <laughs> you know, you yeah. you either make it plain where you stand, and, uh, or you keep out of the game. You know, whereas you know most of what rock stars got up to, they got up to under cover of darkness. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and. Um, you know, every gig being played by every band everywhere in the world tonight is being filmed by somebody. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, And you can, if you know, you go on YouTube tonight and you can find it. You know, so the surprise cannot be the same. You know, <laughs> I can remember going to see, I can remember going to see, um, it's a minor example, I was going to say J.J. Kale. Came to Britain for oh, the first time. Oh, that guy's amazing. 
1973 or something like that. He's amazing. And he, he, he started on stage, curtain opened, and there were these bunch of guys, they're all sitting. I remember this, they're all sitting. There was drummers, bass players, keyboardsmen. And they're just chugging away at this instrumental, which went on for quite a while. And my wife, who was sitting next to me, said, which one's him? And I said, he hasn't come on yet. He'll come on after the instrumental. She sat back and okay, fine. And then a few minutes later, one of these figures just leaned towards the microphone and started singing Call Me The Breeze. He was already there. Because now, you know, I knew, I knew, I was pretty well informed. I wasn't that far away from him. But I didn't know really what he looked like. I didn't know what to expect from the show. People know exactly what to expect nowadays. Because it's, it's a rehearsed experience. Mm. It's bound to be, you know, because, you know, it's just the way it is because there's tons and tons of media. And, uh, you know, there's, everybody's got a camera. Do we like it like that now, do you think? I mean, do we do we like to not know, uh, do we like to know exactly what's going to happen that we're not pushed and, and challenged and all that stuff? Don't ask me. I don't know. But my, my daughter, my youngest daughter always says that the reason people go to rock festivals nowadays is because of social media, mm. because of the opportunity to tell people where they are. Wow. That's pretty, <laughs> that's adroit right there. That's pretty on point, man. <laughs> I think it probably is. Wow. And I think, sorry, I keep harping on about social media. Oh, no, I, I hate it too. I hate it and I love it. I, I, it's like one of those things right, where... It's right, a life, isn't it? Yeah. You can go to, you know, she and her mates could go to Glastonbury or, or wherever. And they could take pictures of themselves in their kind of jean shorts and their, you know, green wellies in the same mud, carrying a glass of whatever. And and they'll and in their Instagram posts, they will kind of look like Kate Moss and her mates. You know, mm. they they don't need media. They they can do it themselves. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So you can star in your own life now in a way that was not available to you in 1982, wasn't there at all. So people live through stars more than they do now. Wow. That is, that's, I didn't even think of it until just you just said that, man. That is such an amazing point. We're, yeah, when, and you guys, I guess people can invent themselves now on their social media. The, yeah. It's, it's different, you know. It's, it's no point saying it's better or it's worse. It's different. Yeah. No, it is totally different. And do you find the the musicians that are are very super popular? Like we did mention Ed Sheeran, for lack of a better example. But look, at least they were talking about Radiohead a little bit. What about the Foo Fighters guy? Now he was in a band with the last great rock star, and I believe I, I kind of agree with you on, on the Kurt Cobain thing. Now, did you see them play at Glastonbury? No, I didn't. I didn't. I got lucky. I know their tour manager, so I was literally, my wife and I were on the side of the stage, right? All right. And the one thing that I took from it, that, you know, obviously these guys, this isn't their first rodeo, that they're a professional band, they've been doing it over 20 years and things, but the one thing I noticed that there was no click track, there was no in-ear monitor thing happening, it was just live monitors, the band was playing 100% live, the drummer was running the, running the, uh, running the tempos and all the songs, and I just thought that that, in particular, was super, like not refreshing, but super great to see, because then I realized actually some people are still doing it like that. Yeah. 
Well, well, you you've been in a better position than, than most people to spot whether they are or they aren't. No, I, but I know I was yeah, I had an awesome seat, and every once in a while I get hooked up. But the thing that I took away from a lot of these uh, a lot of these live experiences we we're talking about, they seem to be very 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 contrived, obviously, right? And even if you know, even if people say, well, you know, the Foo Fighters may do the same set, you know, every other night or whatever, I still the fact that they're doing it live without a net, I really admire. Yeah, well, that's good. I tell you what interests me is you go back and you listen to the Who Live at Leeds. So when is that? 1970, yeah, I yeah. think. Yeah, great record. So, so there they are, four guys, three instruments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everybody's yeah. soloing at one time too, yeah. And it's the most unbelievable sound you've ever heard yeah. in life. And, and then we, and the, the Who are, they're still around, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. One shape or form. And if they came on stage nowadays... To play that stuff, there would be about ten of them. Yeah. There would be, you know, there would be backing singers. There would be second, third guitars. There'd be guys playing synthesizers, whatever. It wouldn't there? You know, yeah, yeah. And you, you think this used to be so simple? <laughs> it used to be just a bunch of guys playing, and now the amount of technology involved is staggering. Because I think one of the reasons is the sums of money involved are staggering. And if you're charging people for 50 or 60 pounds, you can't afford anything to go wrong. And so it starts to get more like a West End show. Yeah, I mean, I, I still, I mean, I, when I play shows with my guys, we always go out there and, you know, we don't really rehearse stuff. Maybe that's to our detriment. But I always thought that if you do something very different every night, you're still into it. And then if you're still into yeah. it, you're in the moment and you're transmitting that out to the people. No, I absolutely. I agree. I agree. You can tell the bands that are interested in the and the ones that aren't. Yeah, definitely. Now, you know, with what's going on with uh, all these festivals, do you think we're going to start to see, I guess, uh, another, another kind of irreverence towards like corporate rock media, <laughs> and there's going to be like a new movement coming out? Because I know I I kind of always think there's ebb and flow in music. I think we're definitely not at a very prosperous time for creativity and uniqueness, but I think that might be something around the bend. How do you feel? Well, I don't know, really. I, um, I, I, I don't see it. I'd be lying if I said I saw any sign of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's, it's, it seems difficult to me now to, for kind of subcultures to, to form away from... You know, I, I was talking to John Ingham not long ago. John Ingham, who, who was the first person to interview the Sex Pistols, I think. And uh, and he, he's done a really good book about just about going to see them at four shows, I think, in 1976. And he talked about going to see them, and he says, it was the same 30 people. Yeah. <laughs> it was 30 people. And... And I said, John, you're a writer. Why did you take pictures? He said, because nobody else was doing that. <laughs> now, can you imagine if you went to a children's birthday party nowadays, yeah. it would be, it would have more camera coverage than, than a major news event. Yeah, I know it's you know? nuts, yeah. Whereas then you, there was space in which old little cults could just develop at their own speed. Um, and uh, I think that will be difficult in the days of social media. Do you think we? Do you think it might be a, 
Everything goes overground very quickly, I think. Yeah, do you think it'll be away from all that? I mean, because if, if it's going to be something that's truly subversive, all these things that have just become, you know, I guess commonplace now, be it social media and, you know, uploading videos and uh, could you think it'd be something obviously we're going to get caught looking the other way regardless of what happens but yeah that's for certain yeah <laughs> um i think it might yeah it might be i do i do i do detect with my children who are not children anymore that are kind of varying different kinds of digital natives whereas i'm a digital immigrant mm-hmm. okay. yeah i hear you that they're they're slightly less thrilled about that stuff than I am. You know, I'm, I still look at social media and, and I still look at an iPhone and go, wow, that's amazing. It does that. <laughs> they don't. And, and therefore, you can imagine them retreating from it. You can see that. I wouldn't claim to know how it's going to happen or, or what part music will have in it. Um, but you can imagine that, that they're, that they're starting to see that said, uh, you know that that the world has been conquered by by the fun industry, hasn't it? <laughs> Indeed. That's what you know. This is not when Pete Townsend wrote. You know, who's next on Lifehouse? As you know, as it was originally going to be, his idea was that they is that the social control would be exerted by sinister <laughs> governments and men in white coats. And, you know, not true. Yeah. It was. It was Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> it was the grooviness industry. Yeah, it's, the, it's, the, it's the kid <laughs> it's, with the hoodie. It's yeah. Steve Jobs, you know. It was the fun industry. That's what did that. <laughs> and that's where we are, you know, because, you know, I, I may have to go in a minute, Hugh, Huey. So but if I if I can leave you with one point, it's, it's in my lifetime, because as I say, I was born in 1950, there was a kind of serious world and then there was a kind of fun world which pop music represented. Mm-hmm. It was the alternative to the serious world. Yeah. Some point in my lifetime, the fun world took over from the serious world. <laughs> that's a, that's. I think that's something we should we should all think about now. And that's why the whole nation has spent the weekend watching Glastonbury. Yeah. Which would have been unthinkable thirty years ago. Wow. <laughs> You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. my head oh. hurts just thinking about that now. I'm starting to get, <laughs> my head is starting to get hurty. So fun, fun as one, do we want it to? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know what, we can apply that to a lot of things going on in the world, man. I, David, I want to thank you for taking, God, almost, yeah, an hour, man. It's been fun. I hope you've got something from it. Oh, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And I hope a lot of people here go out get this book because it's really cool, man. I like the way you approach stuff. Very thoughtful and uh and concise and and i like the way you did it on this one too where it was a day in the life kind of thing thank you very much well i uh, i guess uh, i'll let you go man and uh keep checking in with me when i can and we'll try to do this again brother all right nice to talk to you all right David. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. well how'd you like that one friends david is a very interesting guy and he opened my eyes to a few new angles for sure i think that was cool Throw down the Google gauntlet on the dude. Check out his books, especially this new one that we referred to in the pod a few times. It's called Uncommon People, The Rise and Fall of the Rockstars. And yo, stay tuned to Huey Off the Record. Next week, we have a guy that created electro music. Yes, that dude. And just about every badass remix you ever heard in your life. It's the one, the only legendary Arthur Baker. Until next time, y'all, stay classy.
Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.